One of the basic tenets of the Christian faith, I mean the basic tenet of the Christian faith, is that we are saved by grace, not by good works. Uh, the very, probably the clearest scripture in that teaching is uh, in uh, Ephesians chapter 2. By grace you are saved through faith, not uh, uh, that is a gift of God, not a result of works that no man should boast. That is basic Christianity. That is the, the thing, the principle, the doctrine that sets Christianity apart from all the other religions of the world. So you would think that Christians basically understand that and that churches basically teach that. But you would be wrong in many ways. According to, uh, according to a study done from the American Worldview Inventory of 2020 from the Cultural Research Center in Arizona Christian University, a majority of people who describe themselves as Christians accepts a works-oriented means to God's acceptance. The study says that huge proportions of people associated with church whose official doctrine says eternal salvation comes only from embracing Jesus Christ, quote, believe that a person can qualify by, for heaven by being good or doing good. All the half adults uh, associated with Pentecostalism, 46%, mainline Protestantism, or what sometimes might be called liberal Protestantism, 44%, and evangelical, 41%, churches are much likely to share of a much harder, higher share of Catholics, 70% embrace that point of view. That has a detrimental effect on everything. If people don't believe that they're saved by grace and that they believe that good people go to heaven and they, that they are good people, you basically have canceled out the impact of the, of the doctrines of grace. There is no gospel in that. Because no one is good enough to merit the favor of God. He has to show his grace apart from our works. So uh, James Montgomery Voice reminds us the importance of understanding and how this relates to our joy as Christians. Voice says this, joy is founded to a large degree on sound doctrine. But apparently half the Christians in America don't have sound doctrine. So it's a little wonder the church has not been affected and that so many Christians do not experience joy. My hope, as we look at Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3 this morning, and then continue in the same series uh, next Lord's Day, as we look for the joy for the journey, rejoicing in the Lord, that you will learn to rejoice in the Lord by having a firm understanding of the great doctrines of Christianity. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we do turn to you right now, God, and just uh, pray, God, that you would help us to understand your word, and help us to understand the basics of how someone is saved. Uh, we are hardwired towards legalism. We are hardwired to try to demonstrate to you our worthiness when Scripture says that, uh, that all of us, because we're sons of Adam, because we're daughters of Eve, we are children of the fall, and it takes a Savior to save us. We cannot be saved by good works. That is so basic and yet, apparently, so misunderstood by so many. So I pray, Lord, that you would teach us as we look to your word this morning. We need your help to apply these truths to us. As you, as you inspired the Apostle Paul through the Holy Spirit, we pray for the power of the Holy Spirit to teach us these truths today. In Christ's name, amen. Please, again, turn to Philippians. And uh, look at. Uh, we're going to be looking at just these uh, three verses today. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. And you'll remember that in Philippians 2... 
Uh, Paul has shown us how to avoid pride and disunity, which might have been something of a struggle in the Philippian church by pointing out Christ's humility. And then he gave us the great examples of Timothy and Epaphroditus, men that we could follow, uh, even we can follow some 2,000 years later, that demonstrated a genuine care for others uh, as a form of worship to the Lord Jesus Christ. And now what he's going to do is Paul's going to show us that false Christianity uh, uh, compared to a, a, a portrait of true Christianity, especially exemplified by the Apostle Paul and his experiences himself. And it's really such a wonderful opportunity for us to understand, again, go deeper and understand the Apostle Paul, because the very things he condemns was actually some things that he at once practiced himself in his ignorance before he came to know the Lord Jesus Christ. He understands the, line, the mind and the ways of the legalist because he was one. So let's turn our attention to Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. I'll read those verses and then we'll look at how we're going to break down into three different uh, aspects of this teaching. God says, the Apostle Paul writes, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble for me, and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. You might take a look at your home group help insert. It might help you as we flow through these th three verses here. You will see here, we're going to first of all look to rejoice in the Lord uh, in verse 1, then religious rogues in verse 2, and then real right, the real righteous in verse 3. First of all, we are called here to rejoice in the Lord. Now, notice he starts off with that word, finally. But, you know, the astute observer would notice there's still half the letter of the Philippians to go here. So what does he mean by that? So it would probably be better translated as furthermore, so then, now then, or now to go on. It's really a word of transition, not as conclusion. Uh, Ken, he, Ken Hughes uh, kind of jokes that one time a father asked his boy, what does the preacher mean when he says, finally, in his sermon? And the father muttered, absolutely nothing, son, absolutely nothing. <laughs> So there's some truth to that, right? Uh, so here we find finally introduces a fresh point, not the end of the latter. He wants to elaborate further on the stuff that makes joy possible. And you cannot experience joyful Christianity apart from the great truths of Christianity. It is, it is the doctrines of grace that we understand from the gospel that is given to us from Holy Scripture that will help us stay in joy as Christians, when we forget those, we're listening to our own emotions, we're, we're dependent on our own experiences, we are influenced by the whispers of the evil one and the temptations of the world. So, so understanding the truths of Scripture are just paramount for you to be able to maintain joy as a Christian. He is again writing to Christians. He again uses that term, my brethren. So this again, like all of Paul's letters, is written to Christians. So if you're a non-Christian, you can't really experience some of this joy yet because you don't have the Holy Spirit. Now, we would love for you to become a Christian today, for you to, uh, to receive the Lord Jesus Christ and recognize his claim on your life. But he's writing to Christians, and it helps us to keep those categories straight uh, because he, is, uh, he intentionally calls them out as brethren. And he says here, rejoice in the Lord. 
This is the prevalent theme, of course, of the letter of the Philippians. This is the reason why joy is part of our series here as we go through this. Word. But he mentions joy or rejoice some 16 times. Y'all, if there was ever a letter our generation needs, it's this letter. Because we struggle to rejoice. We struggle with joy. We get so burdened and discouraged by the things of this world. You need Philippians. And you need to understand and unpack what it is that Paul is calling us to do. So let's talk about this thing of joy. And we're going to revisit this probably every time we go through one of these, uh, one of these passages in, in Philippians. What is joy? I would submit that one reason why you're not experiencing joy the way you should is that you are looking at the world's definition of joy, not God's definition of joy. And it really does matter, and they really are different. Again, to quote James Montgomery Boyce of the great uh, 10th Presbyterian Church of Philadelphia, joy is the supernatural delight in God and God's promises, God's goodness. There is, a, there is a, a worship aspect to the Christian joy. There is a focus upon God himself, not you, not your limitations, not your failures, not all the things and the difficulties that you've got that you had last week and that you're facing in this current week. I think C.S. Lewis is of benefit here. And good old Ben Headley reminded me of this particular passage uh, in uh, C.S. Lewis's uh, some of his book, but he realized that the, the Christian joy is really a longing for God. What the Germans would call that, that, that sort of a, uh, uh, that longing that can't really be satisfied in this life, a shishnuk. He says here that it is an unsatisfied desire, which itself is more desirable than any other satisfaction. I call that joy. It, it's the kind of thing when you come out, of course, we, of course, wasn't it wonderful waking up the last two days and that little kind of Christmas starting to come into the air? Uh, here in Anderson, we love the er months, right? Uh, I mean, it's everybody's favorite season after a bunch of 90-degree days in July and August. Uh, and and, and, and there's, a, there's something about nature that just shouts to the glory of God, and, but you can't get hold of it. You know, you can sense it. There's a groaning there and a longing. That's, that's part of what Lewis is talking about. It's this whole principle that you were made for a world other than this. There's a bit of Eden in every one of us that is homesick for what Adam and Eve had before the fall that we will have again one day when we die, but we're groaning for right now. Uh, the ancients would call these the, the, this idea of, uh, of longing for something that's beyond space and time, the transcendentals of goodness, beauty, and truth. If you, if, if you simplify your desires, they really always center around goodness, beauty, and truth. For the Christian, that goodness, beauty, and truth is fulfilled in God. And, it gives, and given to us through Holy Scripture so we can understand true beauty, true goodness, true truth. But notice this. Even your sin is a pursuit. Your lust are pursuit of goodness, beauty, and truth. But you're, but you're pursuing the wrong ends, your, uh, your uh, end means. You're pursuing something that's going to satisfy for the moment, but then bring you guilt and shame later on here. Only God, only following God's ways will really bring you goodness, beauty, and truth. And we can glimpse some of that to come. But when you get to heaven, that's all you're ever going to experience. Goodness, beauty, and truth. With no limitations of the flesh, no temptation from the devil. 
No, no cry of distraction from the world. It's that groaning desire for all the goodness, beauty, and truth that you can get in this life. That's joy. And it's that powerful kind of joy that will get you through the trials and tribulations of life. Because you will see even the difficulties, even the failures, even in a sense your sin are all driving you towards worshiping of God. And your joy can, can be fulfilled in that. So it doesn't have anything to do with your own particular circumstance. Uh, 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 the word for happiness, for instance, in Greek is fortu uh, fortuna, which, comes, uh, which uh, relates to the word fortune, right? So it, for the world, their joy depends on whether you're having a good day or a bad day, whether you're healthy or whether you're ill. But this true, deep Christian joy, this longing for God can transcend all those days. You can have a terrible day from the world standpoint and yet have the peace that the Lord can give you. His notice this, this particular ver, uh, 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 verb here, rejoice, it's a present tense, active voice, imperative mood. You were thinking when you read that, is that a present tense, active voice, imperative mood? You would be right. Ashley Macaria, who just finished Greek, was thinking that. So it's, you know what that means, imperative mood? It means it's a command. It means it's a command. You're thinking to yourself, how can you command joy, a joy's emotion? It is partly a joy, uh, emotion. But it actually is a command. God wants his people to be joyful about all that he's given them. So it doesn't relate to your changing circumstances or anything like that. As Sinclair Ferguson says, this kind of joy that we're looking for has its source and ultimate object in him. Its source does not lie in your changing circumstances, but in our unchanging Savior and the joy-giving word he has spoken. As Nehemiah said in Nehemiah 8, uh, 10, the joy of the Lord is our strength. We embarked with counsel the story of John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist movement. He was a wonderful evangelical, and his, and his brother wrote some great hymns. Uh, he, he was uh, traveling on a three-week preaching mission with the Reverend John Nelson, and the two slept on a hard floor with no padding for those three weeks. Uh, Wesley used Nelson's coat for a pillow, and Nelson used Burkitt's notes on the New Testament as his pillow. And Nelson relates that one morning, quoting now, one morning about 3 o'clock, Mr. Wesley turned over and finding me awake, clapped me on the side saying, Brother Nelson, let us be of good cheer. I have one side yet, for the skin is off but one side. <laughs> you know? that's, pretty, that's pretty amazing Christian joy. You know, you're here, you are, all right, God, I'm ministering to you. I'm out here for a three-day trip and everything, and all I've got to sleep on is this hard floor here. I am worn raw from this, and yet, and yet, God is bigger than that trial. Now we see here religious rogues here, and Paul really uses some pretty violent, extreme languages here to describe uh, these religious rogues that are, that are plaguing the Philippians church. And part of that is that these, these same type of folks, these same kind of views have been plaguing quite a number of churches, uh, the churches uh, in, uh, in, uh, in Asia uh, and, uh, and Europe as well. So he basically says here, beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision here. And the reason why is false doctrine always robs us of joy because you, don't, you can't put your God, your, your joy in God when you misunderstand who God really is is so the the the, the culprits that uh, he's probably dealing with appear to be the judaizers his old nemesis 
It was the Judaizers that was the reason why they had the Council of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15. Uh, they, do, they don't appreciate that salvation is founded only on Christ Jesus. They would have hated Ephesians chapter 2, 8 and 9, that you were saved by grace. Uh, they, they wanted you, they, they believed that in a sense you were saved, yes, by God's grace, but also by works and by ceremony. You, uh, you Gentiles, that's a great thing that you found Jesus Christ. Now you need, but the, to really find Jesus in a deeper level, you've got to become a Jew first. So you've got to be circumcised. You've got to go through a bunch of ceremonies and rites. You have to ba basically adhere to the law of Moses. You have, to, uh, you have to eat kosher food, this kind of thing. So wherever Paul went, these Judaizers seemed to come after him because they were so steeped in the traditions of Judaism that they just couldn't let those go. It just seemed like grace was so simple, too simple, and perhaps even dangerous. So they're constantly plaguing the Apostle Paul, plaguing uh, the early church. As one commentator said, to add, uh, to add circumcision or any other ceremony or law to salvation by grace does not enhance the salvation or add security to the believer. It destroys the faith and casts Christianity into the realm of all other man-made religions. In Galatians, where this was the big problem, when Paul wrote the letter to the Galatians, as we're going to be looking at again for the men's Bible study this Thursday, for freedom, uh, Galatians chapter 5, for freedom Christ set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. He warns Timothy of these same kind of people that if they're, if they're not silenced, their talk will spread like gangrene amongst the different churches. But here's the problem. Based on the survey that I started off this sermon with, based on the fact that apparently half the people who identify from, by Christians think they're getting to heaven because they're good people, uh, the Judaizers have won. They have won the American Christian church. Because people think they get to heaven by being good. They may not say it's circumcision, but it might be anything else. You fill in the blank. Uh, <clears throat> he calls them three different things here. Again, they're described in terms. Now, we kind of lose some of this alliteration in the English, but, uh, but it would have been pretty clever for, uh, as the uh, Philippians were reading this passage to see the alliteration that Paul had here. Because uh, dogs is kunus, uh, evildoers is kaku and egratus. And then uh, mutilation is catamone. So he got these, these K-sounding words as he's going through here. First of all, these people are dogs, okay? Now, we love dogs, right? I mean, in some ways, that might even be a compliment for us. We, we love our dogs. Uh, but that's not the case in the ancient world. Dogs were mongrels. They were wild. They were filthy. They ate, uh, they ate trash. Uh, they were sometimes dangerous. Sometimes they would actually eat dead bodies. They were considered unclean animals. Uh, we saw a picture of this. We were uh, some of us were going to um, uh, to Jericho, and Jericho was is, was in Palestinian controlled area, and there were some garbage heaps on the side of the road there. And we saw this dog going through the garbage heap, foaming at the mouth. It had it was a hundred degrees in the sun, and he just looked skinny, and you kind of felt sorry for him. But that's the kind of that would be typical of the kind of dogs. Uh, you, you didn't have dachshunds in ancient Greece at the time. Uh, so, uh, so he calls them dogs here, uh, and then he calls them evil workers. Now, this is interesting because they think they're being good workers. 
they, they think by making you go through the suffering and the difficulties of these extra little additions to, to grace that they're demanding, that they're really enlightening you, that they're giving you some truth. They've been reading the Law of Moses, and they see all this stuff in the Law of Moses. They want you to do that, too. So this is a profound insult to them. Uh, that because it's insulting, they, because what they're doing is they're taking pride on every person that gets circumcised, every person that refuses to eat a shellfish, every person that goes to a particular ceremony, the, the Feast of Booth or something else, they take pride in. <laughs> That's another. It's another scalp in my belt. They are proudful, they're boast, and they are self-righteous. And that's probably one of the most dangerous things here, is this idea that I am morally superior to you because I am miserable. <laughs> Isn't that sad? Isn't that sad? When you are consumed with the idea of grace, when you are experiencing the joy of a Lord that you've never met face to face, but that you know exists here, there's a humility that comes through that. And even when you're confronting somebody else's sin, you realize if it wasn't for God's grace, I too could be experiencing that same kind of sin. But when you are firm with the legalists, you, you love, you, you think to promote your position of righteousness by looking down on everybody else. And Paul then calls them the false circumcision, which really means mutilation. And what they do is, be, and this is how we know that he's talking about Judaizers here, is because circumcision was such, a, uh, such an important part of, uh, of Jewish life here. It was the thing that made them distinct from all the other nations. It was a part of the, the outward ceremony that God gave them to set them apart from other, other nations. It was the visible sign of the visible church, in a sense, at that time. But it always intended, was, was intended to represent an inner blessing. No one's going to be saved by circumcision. The circumcision is to, is to identify you as someone who is, uh, who is saved uh, because your heart has been changed. That's always been the way it is. But people, it, it, we just we go for the thing we can see and we neglect the thing we can't see. We just tend towards that. And that's what these people are doing. So circumcision, of course, was a great symbol. It, talks, it, it involves the procreative uh, organism where, it talk, where we understand that sin is passed on to every new generation through procreation here, and it involves blood. So there's a there's a view to the sacrifice there, uh, and of course circumcision has now been replaced in, with a new clean type of baptism in the New Testament. But the same thing that baptism, if you are if you become converted to Jesus Christ and you've never been baptized, and you become baptized, that water is not going to save you. No one ever got saved by baptism, adult or baby. It is a sign to show that your heart has been changed. But people forget those principles. But that's the way it was always supposed to be, even in the Old Testament here. So they are false. They're actually the mutilation here. They're false. They're not really healers, but mutilators here. And, and the interesting thing is, too, is you see this in pagan literature. The pagans would often cut themselves to try to get God's sympathy or get God, the, God, the attention of the gods. And they would, uh, you see this sometimes in, in Islam, where they will cut themselves or flagellate themselves with whips and things like that. You see this sometimes in some Catholic ceremonies where people are, are do that. God is never honored by those kind of things. Never honored by those kind of sh those shows of, uh, of humility. What he's looking for is the humility of the heart. And you know, when your heart's really ha uh, changed, you don't feel the need to do all those things, all those ceremonies, all of those signs here. And now we see here, what is the real righteous? Verse 3, for we are the true circumcision. Now the we here is Christians. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put this, 
no confidence in the flesh. So unlike the Judaizers, the, the false circumcision, Christians are the true circumcision because they have an inward spiritual cleansing, not the meaningless outward work. Deuteronomy chapter 10 uh, and, and uh, chapter 30 br uh, bring this to our attention. This is, of course, the Old Testament. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on the fathers and chose their offspring after them. You above all peoples, for as, uh, you, as you are this day, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords and great and mighty and awesome God. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that they may love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, that you may live. Now, notice what Paul is now saying is that test, that, that, that testimony of God that I'm looking for hearts that are his now belongs to the Christians. He, he, as one commentator says, there's an unequivocal assertion of the great spiritual reversal. Judaizers are the new Gentiles, while Christian believers have become the true Jews. Here's another passage, just like the passages we see in Galatians as we've gone through Galatians, that teaches against this idea of dispensationalism, this idea that God's got a separate plan for Jews and for, uh, for Christians. God had a great plan for, Jew, for Jews, and it was fulfilled and is being fulfilled in the church of Jesus Christ. As Galatians is mentioned three different times, Christians are sons of Abraham. All of those promises that were made in the Old Testament are coming through in the New Testament in the church. Romans chapter 2 says this, No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, or circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Now, y'all, the important thing here is, is not, I don't think, in, no one's ever come up to me and say, I think we just need to have more circumcisions in the church. I mean, it just doesn't happen. But there is this tendency that we all have that this burden of legalism that just seems to come up all the time where we've got to do certain things to get God's favor. But if you are a Christian and you care about pleasing God, you've got God's favor. Now, how do I know if you are a Christian and you are working to please God? Well, I'm going to see it in your works. I'm going to see it in your life, and we'll talk about that. But we're not going to see it in ceremony. We're not going to see it in cutting the body. There's this view with legalism that the more miserable I am, the, most, the more holy I am. If that's the case, why does Paul command joy? Why does he command joy? So here's three hallmarks of a true, uh, true teachers and true Christians. They are those who worship in the spirit of truth. And this idea of worship is they render uh, spiritual service, respectful spiritual service. Now, by the way, that is not dependent on location. Again, it is a heart matter. You know, that one of the great tr passages that teaches us this, that ought to go against all of this idea that you've got to have a particular temple somewhere, or a particular church, or a, or a church headquarters that you have to worship in, that you have to visit every time, every, you know, three times a year, or whatever it might be is uh, John chapter 8, you know, the woman at the well is talking to Jesus, and she's, she's, uh, she's uh, living a loose lifestyle. Jesus just shows profound gay grace, and she, she asks, what's the place of worship? What's the pl Her emphasis is on the place of worship. You worship at the temple in Jerusalem. We worship on, on, the, on the mount here as Samaritans. He says this, but the hour is coming, and now here, when true worshipers will worship 
the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. As one commentator says, the old age of ritual ceremony and specially sanctified places has gone. Worship is in spirit and truth. You know, this is one of my favorite themes. I probably mention it every Sunday when we're having our time of meditation. Is we're focusing on worshiping the Lord in spirit and in truth. And those two are connected. The spirit will not allow you to worship if you're worshiping a lie. But this is, this is really important, folks. I mean, it's hard, kind of hard for us to understand this, but there's times when people have said in the past, well, you can't worship unless you're in a particular location. I mean, it's really important for us. We had a, a dad who brought his child to AU about three weeks ago. He said, I had a hard time uh, finding a church. Then I realized what it was, but I thought it was a Masonic Lodge. Oh, well, <laughs> you know, <laughs> so much for that. Now, he, he recognized it's actually a beautiful building, but it doesn't look like a church. But you know what? Based on the hearts I'm seeing right now and the folks that I know out here, this is a church. And the fact is, if we didn't have a building, it wouldn't matter. That's what you've often heard said, the church is the congregation, not the building. And that is true. For convenience sake, we'll talk about go to my church building. But the, the location doesn't matter. And that's, a, that's symbolic. That transition that comes uh, because of the advent of the new covenant is profound because it also affects all these other rituals and sacrifices and the burning of incense and all of those outward forms. But the other point is this, is that worship involves absolutely every aspect of your life. Every aspect of your life. It, it, is, it, it is to the minutest detail, everything we do in our life, it's not just Sunday stuff. It's not just check off the box. It is every aspect of your life. It's how you raise your children. It's how you dress. It, include, it includes how you eat. It includes how you study. It includes the work you do at your work. It includes how you spend your time. It includes how you spend your, your money. Now, that is a blessing. And you see the protection that you have there? You, you know, you look at the, the, the opposition that Jesus had. And from, from a cultural standpoint, the people that hated Jesus the most and wanted him dead and handed him over to the Romans, they would have been considered the top level, A-plus, alpha believers at the time. Because they never missed a service. They always did their tithing. They always did all of those outward observations but their hearts were filled with anger, bitterness, and corruption. We can fall into that too. We can fall into that too. And evidently, half the churches are out there are teaching this message that good people go to heaven. Good people go to heaven. They've, they've removed Christ from the very formula of Christianity. Then we see, so who worship the Spirit of God, who also glory in Christ. Paul loves this term. 35 of the 37 appearances of this word are from Paul's statements. Basically, we boast in Christ. You know, uh, people talk about our church and they want to compliment a sermon or something like that or, um, or just the way, you know, something's happened in our church and everything. I, my first thought is praise God for that because I'm not so sure we exactly know what we're doing sometimes. <laughs> you know, God gets all the credit for if there's any good that comes from this church, it comes from God. We glory in Christ. We boast in Him. 
Romans 15, uh, Paul's closing that wonderful letter, that great theological truth of Romans and saying this, In Christ we have found reason for boasting and things pertaining to God. Sinclair Ferguson says this, To add circumcision or any other right to the work of Christ effectively destroys it because it denies the sufficiency of His grace to save us. Whatever you think you've got to earn God's pleasure, you're basically showing you don't understand faith. You don't understand faith. And then we are those who put no confidence in the flesh. We don't have any confidence in man's unfallen, I mean man's fallen, unredeemed humanness. All of our confidence is in Christ himself. And we have no confidence outside of Christ. Romans 14, 17. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. If you look at the cults, the kingdom of God is a matter of eating and drinking. It's what you drink, it's what you eat, it's what you wear, it's where you worship, it's all the things you do. It's a checklist of good works. And that's not Christianity. That's not Christianity. But that does fill our pride. And that gives us ability to be able to judge others. So to experience this kind of confidence or joy uh, that's described by the apostles, you've got to do one or two things. If you're not a Christian, you've got to become a Christian. To have this kind of confidence, to understand that you're saved by grace, you need, you need to become a Christian. You need to be a Christian. Uh, but there's a lot of Christians who are still struggling with this joy thing. We struggle with this principle of joy. We, we're not always looking to God. We're not always getting our pleasure from Him. Well, if you are dis discouraged, uh, you have a tendency towards depression, anxiety, self-pity, uh, and, uh, and a confidence-destroying sin... Perhaps something you might even term an addiction. I would encourage you to take your lessons from Hebrews chapter 2 and Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which cleanse to us closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured for sinners much hostility from himself, so that you may not grow weary and grow faint-hearted. In a sense, the more weary and faint-hearted you feel, it's probably because you're not looking to Jesus ahead on the race. You're on the race course, you're distracted, you're going off to the side, all you can think about is how sweaty, how tired, how exhausted, how thirsty you are. Because you've, you've taken your eyes off of the gold. So the Christians need to become Christians. And the Christians, I mean the non-Christians need to become Christians. And the Christians who are struggling with this area, I would encourage you to keep your eyes on Jesus. Know that your joy comes from Him. And the more you know Him, the more joy you can experience. Paul closed Romans with this benediction. May the God of hope fill you with joy and peace as you trust in Him. So that you may... Uh, overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, our desire this morning is if any of you do want to, uh, to receive counseling in this matter, if you want to know how to become a Christian, you're not a Christian, we're going to have counselors in this room over here immediately following the service. Please go speak to them and they can help guide you through the process. But let me close you with uh, a stanza from the hymn that we sang at the opening of this service that I think 
speaks to this idea of faith in Christ, this joy that we can have by keeping our eyes on him. The soul that on Jesus have learned for repose, I will, uh, I will not, I will not desert to its foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. Praise God. That's why we can have joy for the journey. Father, I do pray that you would help us to call these things to mind. It's so easy to sit here in the comfort of a Sunday morning, forgetting the troubles ahead and the ones in the past. And we think, well, I can do that. I can think about Jesus. And yet we will walk out of here and we'll be tempted to forget you, to be overwhelmed with anxiety, discouragement, depressions, and fears. So I pray, Lord God, that you would help us to do everything we can to get as much Christ in our life as we can get. To know true doctrines and to understand the grace we're under. And to be able to put those things of the past in the past. And to look towards the glorious future which we have. That is joy. Bless us now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.